Good morning. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, are you the one? Together we suffer the oppression of sin and death, and together we cry out for Messiah. Show us yet again in our heart of hearts just who you are through the power of your word and your spirit. And as we cry out for that last and greatest day, make straight your return to us. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the uneven ground become level and the rough places plain. And may your glory be revealed among us once more. May all flesh see you for the Messiah that you are now and forevermore, we pray. Amen. As you know, I am a pastor, but as many of you guys know, I am also an educator. I am a bivocational minister is what they call it. When a minister has two jobs, Paul preached and he made tents for a time, and that's me. Um, the tents that I make are, um, man, I don't even know what you would call it, helping kids uh, find what they need. I'm the librarian at Rockwall High School. That's what I do. Um, and I love the job. I love it to no end. Um, but the best part of the job is that I get to embarrass my own children uh, who walk through the doors with me. They ride to school with me. They ride to what I call work with me every morning and not outside the school. I know many of you dads can embarrass your kids outside of school, but only a very few have the skill to be able to do it inside the school. So we get to the school, I park the car, we walk up and they know it's coming. The person at the door asks to make sure they have their ID and they say yes and they know it's coming. And we walk down the, the hall a little bit and I go my way and they go theirs and they know it's coming. And I say, caveman, Reese, just remember, your daddy loves you very much. <laughs> Definitely loud enough for everybody else to hear, too. Because you never know. Maybe some other people are wondering as well. They should know, too. Uh, I do love being in the school. I love being a librarian. A big part of being a librarian is getting questions, and I love questions. Um, I think questions provide a way, a famous philosopher once said. Uh, and I get all kinds of questions. You would not believe the kinds of questions I get and the places I get them. It will never, ever cease to be hilarious to me. Uh, but I did get one question that I thought I would share with you this morning because it came from somebody that found out that I was not only a librarian, but a pastor when I'm not at the school. And so he asked me, and he asked me a really good question, and it was this. Had I seen anybody healed as a pastor? Which I thought was a great question. I know it to be a great question because it's a question that nags me constantly. Uh, especially as a care pastor. And I told him, yes. And I had not been a minister for very long, ordained minister for very long. But I told him, yes. Yes, I had seen God heal one of his saints. Um, beyond doubt actually. Um, people get sick and people get well, and sometimes we know that the Lord is Lord over all, but we don't necessarily see our prayers answered so clearly in ministry, much less in the Christian life. 
to do so is a blessing. And at this point, the Lord, I've seen him heal many, but definitely one time thus far, I've seen hands laid on a fellow saint and prayers offered and healing provided by the Lord in his own good time. I have seen it. Um, and it was in such a case that the doctors said there was no other way to account for it. So I have seen it done. And I told this man as much. He was not a kid. He was a coworker. And the man, in response, fell silent. Uh, silent, not necessarily uh, being impressed. He fell silent uh, because he was in serious doubt, which I understand. Certainly understand. Um, and I could tell that he wanted to ask one more question, but he thought better of it and walked away. And the other question would have been this. Why doesn't God heal people more often? And especially, why doesn't he heal his own people more often? And then, to make it as particular as possible, why does he not heal our people more often? And I know the question, I know it well. Why, every time that I pray, does he not send rescue speedily? Because it's certainly what I pray for, for our people. I've known this question for a very long time, since long before I became a minister. Um, some of you may or may not know that my wife is a wonderful person. Um, maybe you don't think she's a wonderful person. I didn't think about that. Uh, whatever you think of her, uh, you should know. She, she happens to be very, very sick a lot of the time. She has a chronic kidney disease. And uh, as a young man, um, I learned to pray like I had never really learned to pray before. For one that I love so much, um, who would from time to time fall into such great pain. And anybody that's had a kidney stone can understand this. But what you need to understand is that my wife's kidneys make stones all the time. And so she has two dozen plus stones that she's carrying around all the time. And some of them have now become impassable. And so uh, we will take the next step in her medical care. But um, the story of my life as a, as a man of prayer can't be told without that. Having said that, I would say that for a very long time, I've wondered the same question that this man asked, which is, why does God not send rescue when I call, when I ask? Because I do it. I've spent many nights laying in bed uh, praying, praying for rescue, and it doesn't come. And I know the doctrine. I know it well, that suffering produces endurance and perseverance. But I will tell you, as a minister and as a husband, um, that that offers little comfort to those that I rush to care for. Maybe you found the same to be true. Those that I love and pray with, those that I hope with, those that I cry with, those that I share their disappointment with, means little especially when rescue is needed, speedily. So what's to be done, I ask you? Pretend that that man is here today asking you, because I have no doubt that if I had had the time and he had the courage, the conversation would have came to this. 
What's to be done when we pray and our God does not rescue us? I'll even ask it this way. What do we do when we pray and our God of rescuing, because that's who he is, he rescues people. What are we to do when he doesn't rescue us? Do we keep hoping for rescue indefinitely? I've heard that suggested. Uh, But I will tell you that's not possible. Not in my experience. Hope will be lost. It's hard to hold on to hope. So when we lose it, do we just grin and bear it? I've heard that uh, suggested as well. Do we tough it out? I've heard that suggested by some of you. Meaning well, but nonetheless, you have suggested it to me. Or do we fake it till we make it? Which is a solution that I think most, if not all of us, have tried at one point or another. And I would venture to say with very little success. In our silence before the Lord, now remember this series on John has incorporated silence throughout. So in our silence before the Lord, do we begin to realize, I wonder, that from time to time our rescue is not coming? And if so, what then? How then do we pray and live? How do we live when we've lost hope? The reason I ask is because today we find John in such dire straits. We find him imprisoned. He's not baptizing anymore. He's far from the Jordan, far from the bright light, the water, and the sunshine hitting the water, and the joy of God's people. He's far from all that. He's in a dark prison, and he's alone, and he's unrescued. And he's unrescued in a world that he knows and has preached needs rescuing. He had a lot on his mind, I have no doubt. And so let's go visit him this morning. And let's stare him down between the bars. And let's ask him to share his heart with us this day. I have no doubt that he was pondering and rolling over in his mind just what he had seen. Think about it. We hear about Jesus baptized all the time. He saw it. It was by his hand. And what's more, he saw the Spirit descend and rest on the Christ. He was the first one to know that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And that was all done according to the Scriptures. He got to see that book that you carry and read fulfilled in his own day. He remembered it like it was last Saturday. Which means to him what? The Messiah should come and reign any day now. This is what Isaiah says. But there he sits, rotting in a cell, left to think and rethink and rehash his preaching, just like all preachers do on a Monday morning, just like I'll do tomorrow. So he's thinking about what he had preached. Had it come true? Had every valley been filled? No, not really. Had every mountain and hill been made low? No. Proud Herod still sat where he sat in his place of authority. Had the crooked been made straight? 
No. No, John had been imprisoned falsely, and no doubt other countrymen with him. Had the rough places been made level? No. I bet you he asked that sitting on a cell floor with rough stone, knowing full well things were not made level. Had all flesh seen the salvation of the Lord? Apparently not. Not yet, anyways. And what about John's own circumstances? Consider this. Whose spirit did John come in? He came in the spirit of Elijah. And what happened to Elijah? Anybody that's grown up in the church knows. Anybody that's grown up in the church remembers the flannel graphs of Elijah being carried away with the chariots of fire. It's glorious. But what about John? John was left in a prison cell. Where was his chariot? Nowhere to be found. And his walls closing in. No rescue on the horizon. Remember Isaiah, because John certainly did. Would Messiah not proclaim liberty to the captives? Would he not open prisons for those bound? He's left to wonder. His hope for rescue begins to fade, and reality begins to set in. That God's last and greatest prophet, the greatest man born of woman, is about to be defeated, and defeated by a perverse and vile enemy, even the very enemy that he prophesied against. Now, consider this. What would this be, be like? He came in the spirit of Elijah, Who hunted Elijah? It was Jezebel. This would be like Jezebel making her promise that the sun would not go down on Elijah again. This would be like that promise coming true. Complete opposite of Elijah's story. John's is going in a complete opposite direction. Things weren't adding up, and John had to start wondering, what is missing here? Was he mistaken? Was he mistaken about Jesus? No, he can't be. He can't be mistaken about Jesus being the Christ because he saw the Spirit descend. He saw the Scriptures revealed in his own day by his own hand. Could not be mistaken about Jesus. And yet, the forces of evil still hold sway. So what gives? Perhaps the time was now, or perhaps the time was not yet. It makes no sense. Perhaps they're meant to look for another. What? That makes no sense. But we can see that John saw he was on to something, wasn't he? He was looking through a mirror dimly. He was not meant to look for another prisoner. He was not meant to look for another visitor. He was meant to look for another visit. John didn't know about the second coming. But he was feeling for it in the dark as a man who could not see a mountain behind another mountain. All he could see was the one that was in front of him. Still, he was confused, so he sent disciples to send word to Jesus and ask a stupid question. And John asked Jesus this, are you the one? It seems strange for John, the guy that baptized Jesus, to ask the question. And by the way, it probably seems strange 
for me to ask Jesus the question as I prayed before I started preaching. And it probably seems really strange for you to stop and ask Jesus if he's the one. But we need to understand something. We don't know it all. And John may not have either, but he did know something. He did know the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah tells the people to inquire of their God. To inquire of their God. To go and seek answer from their Lord when things didn't add up. Isaiah tells Israel this in Isaiah 8. And John knew as much. Isaiah tells the people to inquire of their God. For he is their God. He and no other. Do not inquire of dead people. Do not inquire of necromancers that look into the next realm. Do not inquire for other answers. Do not inquire for other hope. You belong to the Lord. So who should you inquire of? Who else would you inquire of? You would inquire of your God. So John follows Isaiah. He inquires of his God in the teachings and in the testimonies of the Lord. And in a way, he prays. And he sends word to Jesus. And Jesus answers him. And did you notice that Jesus isn't offended by the question? I think it's worth pointing out that there are no stupid questions with Jesus. I also think it's worth pointing out that a very vast portion of his teachings are offered in response to what we would otherwise call stupid questions. So consider the Lord's patience and joy in answering John. Now why? Why would Jesus put up with such a question? Well, think about it. When people ask who Jesus is, what does he get to do? He gets to tell them. He gets to show them. Ask him if he is the one, and he will show you just how much the one he is. This is his mission in this world. This is our calling as ministers of his gospel. This is the message, the ongoing mission of his Holy Spirit today on earth is to show the world who Jesus is, that he is the one. So, of course, he's not frustrated. He's excited to answer, and he answers John in full by giving him four different quotes, four different points from the book of Isaiah, the most messianic book in all the Old Testament. He gives them these answers, and he gives them in such a careful and sharp way that it's almost like a coded message that demands uncoding. And it does take some doing to understand, especially for us. If we don't have the book Isaiah known forward and backwards the way John did. But I would argue that it's worth taking the time to pull these things apart and look through the book of Isaiah to see what Jesus is telling John. So here goes. Hold on tight. I promise it'll be worth it. First, Jesus begins by telling John, The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The, leper, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And that comes from Isaiah 35. And it was offered, originally offered, as, as, some, as a word that was meant to calm those anxious about whether or not Messiah was coming. There God says this, 
Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. So here, Isaiah prophesies that Messiah will be a man of vengeance. But he also, in the same passage, says that he'll be a man of healing. So how do the two go together? It doesn't make sense. It's so weird. But it's true. Jesus does not show his power through power. He shows it through mercy. He shows it through mercies that are foreign to this world. And so, in a very real way, Jesus is telling John, Behold, my power, my kingdom, it's not of this world, John. So don't expect it to look like Herod's. Mine is going to be completely different. Second, Jesus says that he raises the dead. He takes that image from Isaiah 26, where the people are oppressed by sinful oppression into the very earth. They are oppressed into the dust of the earth, and the dust covers them over as if they are dead and no more. And Isaiah says, no, no. Someday, Messiah is going to come, and he is going to lift up his people, and he's going to take the oppressors, and he's going to put them in their place. He's going to take you up out of your grave, and he's going to put sin and death in your grave and cover it over, and it will be no more. Here, resurrection is a picture of redemption, salvation from the oppression of sin. And by raising the dead, Jesus proclaims to the whole world and to John that he is the one. He's going to live up to his name. He will be the one that saves his people from their sins. Third, Jesus says this. He says, the poor have received good news, the good news preached to them. Jesus reminds John of the very day that he was anointed because that was the very first thing that Messiah was anointed to do. Did you know that? The very first thing on, on Jesus's uh, responsibility list. His job description is to preach to the poor. And he reminds John of that. But John was there. It's that day that he has in mind rolling in the back of his head. It's that day that the Spirit descended. So Jesus is reminding John that when he was baptized, he was anointed to preach to the poor, which is probably part of the reason that Jesus spends time preaching and baptizing on the Jordan. And by, by acknowledging the poor, by valuing the poor, by preaching to the poor, what does Jesus say about Messiah? He says Messiah will reject the riches and the power and the prestige of this world. Messiah will not look like Herod. Messiah it will not look like that. Messiah will not sell out. Jesus will not sell out to this world. So don't worry about it, John. I'm not trying to carry favor. I'm not trying to make money. I'm staying true to the mission the very day that you baptized me. In fact, I'll do you one better. Instead, instead of valuing riches, I will sell my life dearly for my people. I will become poor that they might become rich indeed. But notice, those of you that have... Um, any uh, background knowledge about Isaiah 61, notice that Jesus leaves something out that's really important, and it's about rescue. Listen to this. It says, 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open the prisons to those who are bound. Jesus leaves that part out, and he leaves it out to John. John, who's in prison. John, who needs rescue. Jesus leaves the rescue part out. So what's Jesus saying to John? Will John be rescued? No. John will not be rescued. John will stay and meet a truly awful end. Truly awful. And therein lies the difficulty. The difficulty of this passage and the difficulty of the Christian life. Here we see one of God's faithful servants serving to the very end and needing rescue. And we see God not providing rescue. We see no rescue coming. In this time of now and not yet, the kingdom of heaven is taken by force. Jesus tells us that. And this is what that means. In this life, we find ourselves imprisoned and oppressed to death. Consider the pains of chronic illness. Ask the grays about living with illness that is chronic. Ask my wife about living with sickness. Consider the pains of aging. Ask the fosters about the last 14 months of their life and what it's looked like. Ask the McAvoys, who are still faithful members here, even though they can't make it. Ask the McAvoys about the last five years of their life. Consider the pain of loss, those that have passed on before you. And ask yourself if you still miss them so bad that it hurts. And so we pour our prayers out before the Lord day and night. And sometimes the deafening silence is broken. And we hear footsteps running for us down the hall to our cell to let us out. But I would argue that more often than not, we hear the silence go on endlessly and no one coming. And our rescue, it doesn't seem to come. And we find ourselves like John, left without hope. What then? What good news does Jesus have for those that need rescue? What hope is there for us? Well, it just so happens that Jesus has a fourth and final word for John. And I think it's important that you hear it loud and clear. Blessed, blessed, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That comes from Isaiah 8, the very passage that talks about inquiring before the Lord. Here Jesus takes John back to his original passage in which the Messiah is said to be a stone and an offense, a trap to those offended by God, to those who look for hope outside the Lord. He will trap them. They will lose themselves and be no more. 
But to those who fear and trust in the Lord, he'll be something else entirely. To those who fear and trust in the Lord, he will become a sanctuary, a place of safety, a place of worship, a place of glory in his name. This is why Isaiah waited for the Lord in his own day, in a day that the Lord didn't look like he was worth waiting for. In spite of all Israel's troubles, in spite of all the Lord's silence, Isaiah waited. And do you know what else? He told the people, the people to wait. They were not meant to find their hope in others. In the midst of all their oppression when they lost hope, they were not meant to look elsewhere. They were not meant to grin and bear it and try to live life without hope. They were not meant to tough it out. They were not meant to fake it. They were not meant to hide behind their birthright or their church membership or their confession or their theology or their good ideas. They were meant to hide behind none of it. Instead, they were meant to do as Isaiah told them to do, which was to inquire of the Lord, of his testimonies and teachings and in prayer that God would be their sanctuary until the day, until the day that their oppressors were put in their grave. So having searched the scriptures, what does John do in his cell? He follows Isaiah to the very letter. He inquires of his God. He sends word to the Lord his God. He sends word to Jesus, just like a prayer, asking, are you the one? Are you the one, or should we look elsewhere? And what does Jesus tell John? Through his teachings and testimonies, through his long trip through the book of Isaiah, what does he say? He says something like this. Someday your rescue will come, John, but not yet. Be patient, John. Be patient. Wait for the day. The day that death will be imprisoned forever. And in the meantime, I will be your sanctuary. I will be the one with which you will worship and pray and read and live and die. Worship, pray, read, live, die in me, John. Why? Because the day will come when you will not be disappointed. How then do we live in this time of now and not yet? How do we endure the cells that death has prepared for us? Those heavy doors, those heavy bars that have slammed shut behind us. How do we do it? We must learn to live. We must learn to worship. We must learn to live, read, worship, pray, and die in Jesus. Just as John did. When we lose hope, we must inquire of our God and we must dare to do it. We're not meant to grin. We're not meant to bear the loss of hope. We're not meant to tough it out. We're not meant to fake it. We're not meant to hide behind all of our Christian ease. When all hope is lost, we must learn to pray honestly like John did. Yes, even we must learn to ask Jesus, 
are you the one? In the depths of the night, when we hurt and the hurt won't go away, are you the one? Such a simple question. But you know me, I love questions. And even a simple question has a funny way of leading us in the way we should go. Even to Jesus. When you find yourself imprisoned without hope, inquire of your God. Dare to do it. Who else will you inquire of? Pray, search his word. Call a pastor. Call a friend. Let Jesus show you again and again that he is the one, that he's exactly who he says he is. For the whole of the scriptures speak of him, and this is why he would have us read the Bible. Are you without hope? Read and pray, and I don't mean it in an easy way. Read the scriptures this year. Your senior pastor has dared you to. Read them all. Read them all and ask the whole way through, Jesus, are you the one? I dare say he will show you. For the Spirit lives and breathes to reveal as much. That is his mission after all. He preaches Monday through Saturday, even on Sundays. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one. He is the one. Find your hope in him. In him and no other. But what does it mean to ask and know that he's the one? What good is that? What does it mean? It is everything. It is everything to know that Jesus Christ is the Christ. It is everything. Consider Herod. Not asking and knowing that Jesus was the one. It became his undoing. It costs him everything. To him, Jesus became what? Not a sanctuary, but a stone to trip over, a rock of offense. Jesus became a prison cell. For Herod, Jesus took him and put him in John's grave. One day John will rise again, and he will reign as Herod could only have dreamed of. What did it mean for John to know that Christ was the Christ. Well, Jesus became the exact opposite of a prison cell for John. Jesus became a sanctuary for him, a place of rest and safety, a place of worship and glory. And you know what else? A place of hope. Hope for the day when death will finally be locked in his place. And may Jesus become the same to you in the coming year. When you find yourself oppressed, and with no hope in the world. May Jesus become a sanctuary to you all your days. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us pray. Jesus, are you the one? Together we suffer the oppression of sin and death, and together we cry out for Messiah. Show us yet again in our heart of hearts just who you are through the power of your word and spirit. Be our sanctuary, O Lord, until sin and death are no more. 
And as we cry out for that last and greatest day, make straight your return among us. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. Let the uneven ground become level and the rough places plain. And may your glory be revealed among us once more. May all flesh see you for the Messiah that you are. Now and forevermore we pray. Amen.